You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I'm really thankful for the way that the timing has worked out for us to be in Ephesians chapter 2, really chapter 1 and chapter 2, in a time where we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the resurrection more intentionally. Uh, obviously, every Sunday is an opportunity to celebrate the resurrection. That's why we gather on Sundays, but particularly during the spring season, the Easter season, where we celebrate the resurrection of Christ more intently. Just really thankful that we find ourselves here in Ephesians 1 and 2, where we've been talking so much about uh, our resurrection, our spiritual resurrection, our future hope of physical resurrection, that being based off of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, what it looks like to come alive, what it looks like to be seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Um, just a, a great opportunity to celebrate that when we're so focused on the resurrection. Had a great Easter service last week uh, where we were able to focus on that. And then um, it was really neat, too, just in line with what we're talking about here, about our salvation as individuals, right? We've talked about salvation from God's perspective in chapter 1, how it starts well before time began and how he's been working for our salvation. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, we talked specifically about our pre-Christ condition, what it looks like to be dead in our sins blinded uh, to Christ, um, following the course of this world, swayed by the things of Satan, and then to be made alive in salvation, to come to Christ. And our family had the chance to go up to Chattanooga the past couple of days, which is where our family actually lived until I was about four or five years old. Um, We were up there where my dad was in school, and uh, it was there where I made a profession of faith as a a really young individual. Um, But I remember distinctly God working in my life We got to go and drive through the parking lot of the church that we were attending where I remember particularly being convicted in a Sunday school lesson um, about the gospel and my need for Christ and that it wasn't based based on my works, even though at that time I considered myself to be a pretty good boy um, at the age of four. I tried to be obedient to my mom and dad as much as I I knew to be at that age, but being very convicted that my, my good works weren't good enough to save me. And I remember coming home and having conversation with my mom and How much of it I remember, I don't know, but I know that my mom recorded a lot of that and wrote a lot of that down, so I have those memories preserved even as they start to to wane as I grow older. But um, to know that God God was working in my heart through the Holy Spirit and bringing salvation into me, um, to be able to visit that house and see that, we got to take a picture of it and see, and um, it was just a, it was a cool experience based on what we're studying in Ephesians, to be able to see the church, to see the house where God was working and moving in my life and bringing me to salvation so many years ago. Um, We read about this and study about this more today as we get into uh, verses 8 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to read verses 1 all the way through 10 to really make sure that we have the context of where we've been over the last couple of weeks. It says in verse 1, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And this is true for every person that's a believer. This is true about who you were prior to Christ, no matter what age you were saved, right? My dad got saved or made a profession of faith later in life. Uh, My mom made a profession of faith later in life. I made a profession early in life. Um, And so I didn't have maybe all the experiences of knowing uh, opportunities for sin, 
right? But there was a day in, in, in my life at the age of four, four and a half, whatever it was, where I came to a realization that I was in sin. Um, at that time in my life, I was a huge fan of He-Man. Um, he was the master of the universe for me, right? Like I watched the cartoons. We drove by the shopping center where I would go every time I had $5, and I was telling my boys this, every time I got $5 in a birthday card, I drove to Hills Shopping Center with my mom and bought a He-Man figure and added to my collection. Like, he was my hero, right? He is what I desired to become. And there was a moment in time where I realized he's not the master of the universe, right? Christ is the master of the universe. And so even for a kid who was four years old, I came to a realization. God opened my eyes and enlightened me to the goodness of the gospel, right? And he saved me. And it says in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Last week, we said, The resurrection of believers made possible by the resurrection of Christ, it's motivated by the mercy and love of God for the purpose of displaying his grace and kindness forever. We see this at the end of verse 7, right? Why did he save us? He saved us so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. God is setting up this climactic finish to to our understanding of history, to usher us into this coming age where it's all about him just forever showing his immeasurable kindness so that it's on display for all of creation as he works kindness in his his people, right? And that brings us to verse 8. As a reminder, Paul helps us to see how do we enjoy this salvation, what are the grounds for this salvation where we're made alive and seated with Christ, where we, we have that reserved seating? We talked about how it's viewed past tensively as though like we're already there, like we're already present with Christ. And I told you it's like my cousin reserving seats for us at the July 4th fireworks. Once he sends the picture and shows us where our blankets are, we feel great about enjoying the rest of the day. We know we have reserved seating. We know we have a spot to watch the fireworks, right? We have a seat with Christ and it's as good as us being there already. And then verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is such an important section of scripture. Three verses that that tell us so much about how salvation works and so much about how it does not work right? Tells us so much about the doctrines that we hang our hat on, that we, we put so much faith and trust in, that it's Christ who saves us and not we ourselves. Our summary sentence for today, the Bible teaches that while good works do not come before our salvation, they necessarily come after our salvation, making them the fruit of our salvation rather than the root of our salvation. The Bible teaches that while good works do not come before our salvation, they necessarily come after our salvation, making them the fruit of our salvation rather than the root of our salvation. For our kids, good works don't come before salvation, but they do come after salvation, right? What we see here is a great passage that gives us so much to meditate upon when it comes to understanding the role and relationship 
of faith and works within our salvation. When you think about major false teachings, not just errors in teaching, right? Uh, Foundational false teaching issues, they are typically surrounding Christ and the personhood of Jesus, right? Whether it's an attack on his deity or his humanity, and then also a, a lack of understanding, a clear biblical understanding of how faith and works work together, like how they go together. That's where the, the major false teachings really fall, is in regards to Christ and in regards to the relationship between faith and works. And this passage helps clarify a lot for us in our understanding. Uh, we see that salvation is not of works. And that's absolutely essential to understanding and believing uh, if one is to be saved. All right, let me say that again. Understanding that salvation is not of works, that's an absolute essential doctrine to understand and believe if one is to truly be saved. We can't mix it. We can't mix Christ's performance with our performance as though those two things working together provide the grounds for our salvation. Scripture is very clear that that is not the case, and we'll see why that's so important as we work through the text. These three verses, though, help us to process through passages in other parts of Scripture that are heavy on the faith part, right? We're going to read today in Romans 3 and 4, where Paul goes to great lengths to talk about the faith piece of our salvation and how it's absent from works. But then we know in the book of James, which we recently studied in our C groups and our D groups, James talks a lot about how if you don't have works accompanying your faith, then you don't really have faith, right? And so if, you don't, if you're not careful and if you're, if you're quick to make assumptions, you think that those two authors, James and Paul, are working against each other, one talking about faith without works, one talking about faith that has to have works, right? This passage helps us to blend those two teachings together. One is highlighting faith because there was a a misunderstanding of works that was taking place, and so faith had to be drilled at that point in Romans. In James, you have the issue of people putting so much faith and trust in the grace and mercy of God's work that there's almost a disengagement or a a lack of concern about obedience after salvation. And so James has to kind of come back and bring us back to a a level playing field and a balance that says, hey, if you truly have faith, you will work. You will show that faith in your actions. Paul harmonizes these in verses 8 through 10, where he's saying that it's by grace, not by works that we've been saved— But then he accompanies it with the fact that we have been saved. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The basic ideas of these three verses are that salvation is a gift which prevents humans from boasting. But there's also the idea here that true salvation produces good works, right? And so that's where we get this idea that it's not good works before salvation that saves us. It's Christ's work. Christ saves us by his work. And then by doing so, he then empowers us to produce good works after our salvation, right? So good works come after our salvation, not before. And they're empowered by the work of Christ in us. You can see it, uh, and this is where religions sway from what we believe. Two ideas here. We would believe that faith, our faith in Christ, justifies And then it produces works, whereas other religions would teach it's faith plus works that leads to our justification, right? Our faith in Christ, right? Our faith in his work enables God to justify us. And so he gives us faith in the work of Christ. We're justified by that. And then works come as a result of that. 
Other religions would teach that faith and works get mingled together and we therefore can be justified because of the things that we've done. The enemy would seek to convince us of the opposite of this. Think about it. Satan's desire is to obliterate the truth of verses 8 through 10. He would much prefer us to believe and to convince us that good works are needed to be saved. Right? What does that do? It undermines the work of Christ. If good works can save us, then Christ and the cross are unnecessary. Right? Satan would have us to believe that our good works can save us. Even more so, he would love for us to believe that we can never be saved due to our lack of ability to work. Right? He wants us to believe that good works are necessary for salvation, and then he wants to come behind that and, and reinforce and make us believe that we could never work enough to be saved, that our sins are, are too great, and that his mercy could never overcome that. Right? So he wants us to believe that good works are needed to be saved. He wants us to believe that we can't be saved um, due to our lack of ability to work. And then for those of us that make professions of faith, whether it's true or not true, whether it's a genuine confession of faith or not, Satan would desire for us to believe that God's grace nullifies a need to work after salvation, that essentially we can have cheap grace, that we can be saved, that we can trust in the grace and mercy of Christ, and then have zero impact on our life afterwards, right? You can, you can, you can funnel through your uh, Facebook news feed, and see person after person who claims the mercy and grace of Christ who are living in uh, blatant uh, lifestyle-type sins, right? There's a disengagement between faith and the impact that faith is to make on our life, and Satan loves for us to be there. If we're going to make a profession of faith, he wants us to believe that there is nothing that comes after that salvation, that we're good, we've checked that box, we're saved, and now we can go back to our business and go back to living the way that we want to. The normal religious culture is to measure one's own goodness by the performance of others, right? The way that we uh, build cultures of religions that are built on faith-based works, it's you make people feel good by getting them to compare themselves to others, particularly the bad people, right? If you're better than the bad people, how could you not be on your way to eternity with God, right? It's the same mindset as we see in Luke 18, 11, right? Where the the Pharisee comes praying to God and thanking God that he's not like the tax collector, right? Thank you, God, that I'm not like him. Thank you, God, that I'm not that type of sinner, right? We, we are guilty if we're not careful of comparing ourselves to others and feeling good about ourselves and feeling like we have justified ourselves in the eyes of God because we do better works than the one next to us. What we see here in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is that salvation is by the work of Christ alone, It's by his grace we have faith in that work that saves us, and then good works flow. Good works flow from that genuine confession of faith and salvation because God prepared it beforehand. God determined that these things would happen, that we would walk in them. And we must know these truths to avoid being swayed. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul's talking to a group of believers And he's concerned about the fact that they are turning to another gospel, a works-based gospel. He says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. 
But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Right? They were being drawn into this works-based salvation. They were having their, their understanding of the gospel perverted by false teachers. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Remember, this is that parallel book to Ephesians, so we're seeing some of the same concepts and ideas. The fact that we were alienated before Christ, we've been brought to Christ, reconciled by his body, flesh, by death, in order to present us holy and blameless. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Right? We believe this gospel, and then we don't shift from this gospel. And so while these truths are very familiar to us, it's truths that we need to keep coming back to. Because as we continue to age and grow and mature, we hear stories all the time of people who wander from the faith down the road. And we need to know these truths and be anchored in these truths, that our salvation is based on the work of Christ with the plan for us to then work for Christ after we've been saved. All right, so let's see what the text has to say to us specifically. Number one, boast in being saved by God's work. We boast in being saved by God's work. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of the work, so that no one may boast. What are we not wanting to boast in specifically? It's our, it's our performance. It's our works, right? Scripture would instead tell us to boast in the work of Christ, what he has accomplished for our salvation. So we see number one here, our salvation is rooted in grace and faith. Grace and faith are working together for our salvation. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The process of salvation and the elements of salvation are all a gift of grace by God. When we get saved, we are awakened to two things. One, to our sin. Two, our inability to fix it. Right? That's what, we, that's what happens when we come to faith in the gospel. We come to a realization that we are sinful, but that's not enough because what we're prone to do when we find that we've done wrong is we want to try to fix it. Right? We want to fix it ourselves. We want to make atonement for it. We want to do better. Right? We see this early in our kids as we're trying to teach them and train them. When they've disappointed mom and dad, what do they want to do? They want to do better. They want to, they want to do something to make up for it, to atone for it. My kids do this. When, they, when they're broken over their disobedience, their inclination is to try to do something to make up for it, whether it's draw us a picture or do something nice or kind for us. Right? Like they, want to, they want to make atonement. They know the relationship's broken. What can I do to fix it? So coming to faith in the gospel is being awakened to the fact that we're sinful, whether we're four years old or 39 years old, whatever it may be, that we have sinned, we have disobeyed, we've fallen short of the glory of God, right? And then we also have to be awakened to the fact that we can't fix that, that there's nothing good that we can do. There's no amount of prayers. There's no amount of sacrifices. There's no amount of checks to be written. There's nothing that can be done to fix that sin problem. 
We see in these verses a reason for salvation. What makes it possible? It's grace, it's mercy, it's that kindness that we talked about last week. These are all given to us as a gift versus as payment. We haven't done anything to deserve this. Nothing of ourselves warrants God to treat us this way. It's his grace and mercy and kindness. It's a gift. The reality of salvation, what do we receive from it? Our trespasses and sins being forgiven. We come alive with Christ. We have reserved seating in eternity. All of this is not of our own doing, according to Paul here. Our response of salvation, like we hear all these things, we hear all these truths, and then we respond, we react to it with faith and belief. It's the instrument of laying hold to Christ, right? In Ephesians 1.13, we saw it says, In him you also... When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, what did you do? You believed in him, and then you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, right? So we hear these truths about the gospel, that we're sinful, we're in need of a Savior, and we can't save ourselves, but Christ has come to do everything for us, right? He's come to to be perfect on our behalf. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death, and he's back from the dead and gives us hope of eternal life with him. We hear those things, and we're called to believe those things, to trust those things. But even that, we might be tempted to boast about the fact that we believed. And what this passage tells us, too, is that even our response to salvation is something generated within us by God. Look what uh, Acts chapter 18. And this is so humbling and really gives us cause to boast in the work of God because, again, I told you, we talked about this several weeks ago, even the best gospel presentation, you can't create a response in somebody's heart without the Holy Spirit working, right? What does that do? That empowers us to share the gospel. And even when we we don't do a great job, now we can't be... Uh, untruthful in our presentation of the gospel. It's got to be a truthful presentation, but even if it doesn't have the best illustrations or stories to go along with it, right? We can present a very muddied presentation of the gospel, a broken presentation of the gospel that's true, and people can get saved when the Holy Spirit's at work. Man, listening to the No Sanity Required Snowbird podcast, there's a great series on Uh, a guy who was saved overseas through some of their mission work and effort. Guy gets a really basic, what we would call a very basic presentation of the gospel. And man, his faith just takes off. I mean, he responds to it, gets a hold of of a Bible in his language and begins to just consume it. And his life is radically changed to the point where he's being beaten and brought to the brink of death. And he will not recount his faith in Christ. He he won't let go of it, right? Basic presentation of the gospel, but the Holy Spirit is working and moving in his heart and his his heart grasp hold of it. Faith, trust, right? It's a gift of God. In Acts chapter 18, verse 27. I'm starting verse 24. My boy Apollos here. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He's an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He's been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, okay, so he is commissioned to go forth and to encourage and to share the gospel and to strengthen those who are believers. When he arrives in this new area, what does he do? He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. 
for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. What does he do? He helps those who by God's grace had believed, right? God had graciously given to these individuals the capacity to believe the gospel. Even our belief is a gift. Philippians 1.29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What's that passage saying? It says that we've been granted by God the opportunity to suffer for his sake. But not just suffer, we've also been granted by God for the sake of Christ that we should believe in him. Our belief, our faith is even a gift. So there's no boasting, no ability to boast because our salvation is rooted in grace and in faith. Number two, our salvation prevents performance-based boasting. Salvation is a divine gift and therefore cannot be earned. Our moral efforts, our religious activity, going to church, giving, doing certain things, they don't put us in a position to be saved. His standards are too high, and as we've seen through chapter 1 and half of chapter 2, our moral condition is too low. God removes any right for us to boast. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We find our reason for boasting, not in the things that we've done, but in the things that Christ has done for us. Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they might be, may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not, des- do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Right? These people, the Jewish people were trying to force circumcision on people that were coming to Christ here in the New Testament. Paul says that's not necessary. We don't need to boast in our circumcision. We boast what? In the cross of Christ. Let me encourage you to read this large section of scripture. I was going to take time to do it this morning, but we're not going to take the time to do it. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, versus Romans chapter 4, verse 12. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, versus Romans chapter 4, verse 12. It's a long section about faith and works and really highlights the faith piece so that we cannot boast. I want to read to you uh, just the first part of chapter 4. It says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. This long section of scripture talks about the fact that we're saved by faith, not by works, so that we cannot boast in his presence about our performance. 
God removes the right to boast by the ways that he has structured salvation. The only one who should be exalted when it comes to salvation is God. And he will not allow others to steal his glory. We reach back into the Old Testament and you see a passage in Judges chapter 7. This is where we see God's concern for his glory and how God loves to work and move in certain ways where it's obvious that he's the one doing it. And he's the one that gets the glory, right? This is where Gideon is trying to save Israel and deliver Israel from the Midianites. He's got this army that seems legit enough to do so, maybe to pull an upset and to defeat the Midianites, and God keeps whittling it down. He keeps, strength, he keeps uh, uh, reducing the amount of people in his army. He reduces it. He weakens it. Why? Because look what he says in Judges chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. God says there's too many. There could be confusion here as to who's doing it. So we're going we're gonna to whittle it down. We're going to reduce the amount of people in your army down to 300. Down to 300 where it's obvious the only way you win this battle is because God has done the work. And that's exactly how he's structured salvation. We can't be saved by our good works. It's only by the work of Christ. So we boast in being saved by God's work. And number two, we work in obedience to God's plan. We boast in being saved by God's work. He does everything to save us, and then we get to work. We don't work for our salvation, but we certainly work after our salvation because that's what God has ordained to happen. It's what he's prepared beforehand for how we should walk. We work in obedience to God's plan. So for by grace you've been saved through faith, not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, right? Then verse 10, for we are his workmanship which is a passage grammatically that really could mean we are his artwork, his poem, his, his masterpiece. We're his creation, right? All those words uh, together kind of encompass what that word means, workmanship. We are, we are his, his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Number one, good works are the goal and the purpose of our salvation. It's where he is moving us towards. Works cannot save us, but they do play an important role in our salvation. They are to be expected after salvation. God's prepared them. God has destined us to do this. We're not, we're not saved by faith plus works, but we're saved with a faith that does work. And that's the idea behind James's teaching in James chapter 2. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Right? So James would question the individual on Facebook. What good does it do for you to say that you have faith in God, but there are no works, there's no change, there's no evidence, there's no fruit in your life that you really trust him. Instead, you live in sin. Instead, you live according to the course of this world. You follow the things of Satan. Like, what evidence is there that you really trust him? If a brother or sister is poorly, or sorry, um, yeah, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works? Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, what faith apart from works is useless? Then he goes on to talk about Abraham and Rahab, which we talked about 
I guess, three weeks ago when we talked about uh, what it looks like to be enlightened, according to Ephesians 1. What does it look like to have that enlightened perspective, to see things more clearly? Rahab and Abraham see things clearly, right? They see the God of the Old Testament. They put their faith and trust in the God of the Old Testament, and it leads to action in their life. It leads to uh, Abraham saying, you know what? You can have Isaac back. I'll sacrifice him. What does the Bible tell us? Believe that he could raise him from the dead. If, if God carried through that plan and had Abraham actually, Abraham actually sacrifice Isaac on the altar, it says that he believed that God was going to raise him from the dead, even though that wasn't a normal part of life, right? It wasn't like you, you saw people get raised from the dead all the time, but it says he believed God would do that. Why? Because he had made a promise to him about Isaac. Rahab believes that the promised land has been given to Israel, right? She's having this conversation with the slaves and says, hey, we're scared to death. We know your God is giving this to you. Take me with you, right? I want to be a part of where your God is taking your people. Include me in that. Faith that showed itself through works. Works are to be seen as the fruit of our salvation versus the root of our salvation. John 15, 8 talks about us being uh, tied to the vine of Jesus and producing and bearing fruit that proves we're his disciples. Then we see in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And what does that salvation do in us if we're truly saved? It says, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness, to save us from our sins, but also to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. It's the fruit of our salvation. We become zealous for doing the things of God. They're not burdensome to us. It's something that we're excited and passionate about carrying out. Good works that lead to his increased glory being seen by others are the goal and purpose of our salvation. Matthew 5, 13 through 16 is that section we talked about when we were in the Sermon on the Mount. We're salt, we're light. Why? So that we do these good works, others see our good works, and they give glory to our Father in heaven. 1 Peter 2.12 talks about this. People start to criticize us. They look more deep into our life. They see our good works. They glorify our Father in heaven. People should see our good works and say, that's a work of God. Compare and contrast this with what we saw earlier in Ephesians 2. Our life moves from being bent towards living like this world to now living with a mindset of bringing God glory with our actions. Even if that involves sacrifice on our part, we live our life differently than this world. If we don't see that type of desire in our life, I put this in our note, my notes, if I don't see this type of desire in my life, a desire to see God glorified with my actions, to move towards the things of him, then I have every reason to question the validity of my salvation. If I don't have an increasing desire to do the things of God, to bring glory to him, not to earn my salvation, but to point others to him, then I should question the validity of my salvation because my, my, my salvation is designed to produce these good works in me. We have a responsibility to live out our faith faithfully in the area of doing good. This is something that Paul and other authors of scripture pray for, that we would be individuals producing good works. Colossians 1.10, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, 
increasing in the knowledge of God. Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought, ag- brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he also equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what we've been saved for. We've been saved to now work, to have good works produced in us and through us to point other people to our Heavenly Father. Number two, good works are planned and motivated by God himself, right? So we said that if we're not careful, we're tempted to boast about the fact that we believe, that our belief is something that we generated, you know, that, that our, our brains and our minds were, were good enough to see the goodness of the gospel, and so we turned to it. What we see from Scripture is that that part's a gift from God, right? Then if we're not careful, we get saved and we start doing good things. We start using our gifts and our abilities and our resources for his purposes. And if we're not careful, we start to boast in that. We think, look at me. Look at how faithful of a Christian I am. And what we find here is that we can't even boast in our good works after salvation because these are things that God prepared before we were saved for us to do, right? We're destined to walk in these uh, good works. These are different than our previous uh, walking we did according to the course of this world, right? We're destined to walk in these new works that Christ has for us. But here's the catch. God had the specific works we do accomplish and will accomplish in mind when he set out and determined to save us. Let me say that again. God had the specific works that we do accomplish and will accomplish in mind when he set out and determined to save us. The good works we accomplish and even the intention to do them are not a result of our own devising. He planned and equipped us for him. Think about that. Like, for me, I could, I could be tempted to look back on my life and say, look what I've done since I was four or five years old and I got saved. Look at the ways I've tried to give myself to Christ. Look at the ways that I've tried to pursue ministry opportunities and to use the gifts and abilities that he's given to me. And then I have to look back and say, part of the reason that I even am inclined to do this is because I grew up in a household where my dad was doing very similar things to what I do ministry-wise. He worked at a Christian school. He was an administrator at a Christian school, and he was a pastor of a church. I think God used those experiences to push me in this direction of doing what I do today. And I didn't choose my mom or dad, right? I didn't choose the career path that my dad chose to pursue, right? But God chose to place me in a setting where my desires would be shaped by ultimately what he wanted me to do. So I can't take credit for any of this. This is all, this is all generated by him. Everything that I do in my life, the good works that I pursue are generated by him. They were prepared before he ever saved me, that I would walk in them He provides the grace needed so that I can abound in good works that he desires. 2 Corinthians, verse 9. This passage is a passage on giving. And it says in verse 6, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able, listen to this part, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And God's saying, I'm going to give to you in such a way where you have the grace needed to then turn around and give to others. That's going to be a work of me. 
It's going to be a work of me where I make you less selfish and less clingy to the things of this world so that you open your hands and your hearts to give to others. And I'm going to do that in you. I'm going to be the one who makes the grace abound in you so that you have sufficiency in all things at all times to where you're inclined to give, to abound in every good work. Verse 10, it says he supplies the seed to the sower, the bread for the food. He supplies what we need to be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way so that thanks, thanksgiving to God can be produced both in us and to the people that we give. So let's look at a quick summary then of what we've been saying over the last couple of weeks. God's salvation plan is to take us from the amazing depths of our sin to the amazing heights with Christ by his amazing grace with the goal of doing amazing work in and through us. His salvation plan is to take us from the amazing depths of our sin to the amazing heights with Christ. How does he do that? By his amazing grace with the goal of doing amazing work in and through us. What we're seeing here is that we're saved by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, according to what scripture tells us alone, for the glory of God alone. And what what does this do for us? What are the implications here? One, it liberates me from the pride of imagining I can save myself. These three verses liberate me from thinking that I can save myself. Also liberates me from the terror of realizing I can't save myself, right? When I come to the realization that I'm so sinful I can't save myself, these verses also speak to the fact that that's okay because somebody else has come to save me, right? Number three, it liberates me from a lazy and loveless disengagement from the needs of this world. Why? Because I've been saved to work. I've been saved to be obedient. I've been saved to be active, Good works not before salvation, good works after salvation, absolutely. Number four, it liberates me from feeling insignificant or useless, right? You might sit there and say, that's great, Adam, that, that God's working and doing all these things through you, but I don't possess the same gifts or the same abilities or, or the same desires that you have. And if you're not careful, you could easily fall prey to feeling insignificant or useless, but this passage speaks to every single one of us in here that we all have gifts, abilities, resources, and past experiences that God wants to use and mix together, right, to produce good works through you. Good works that I could never produce because I don't have the things that he gave to you, right? Each and every one of us empowered by the Holy Spirit to do good for him. The question that I want to leave you with, and this is where we maintain balance, are you prone to boast in your record keeping of good works? Or do you find yourself working so hard you lose count of the good being done through you? Because this is what happens in Matthew 25 when Jesus shows back up and he's separating the sheep and the goats. Think about the response that those two groups of people have to Jesus talking about how people had cared for him and visited him in prison and taken care of him, right? The people over here, the goats are like, hey, we did that, we've done those things. God says, depart from me, I don't know you, right? You've kept a list of all these good works that you've done, but I never knew you. Then this other group's like, did we do any of that? I don't know. Like, I've been so busy. Like, I, I don't know if I've, I've done of those things. And Jesus says, you've absolutely done those things because as you've done them to other people, you've done them to me. But these people aren't trying to keep track of their good. They're just busy doing the things that they know they're supposed to do. They're busy doing the things that God has empowered them to do. Matthew 25 is a great section for us to see. We are to work but we're not to boast in our working. The identity truths that we see today. Number one, every Christian is saved by grace and without works. But number two, every Christian is saved by grace to work. Not saved by our works, 
but we are saved to work. Good works don't come before salvation. They come after salvation. So our application for today is how are you currently using your gifts, abilities, resources, and past experiences as a means of serving God for his glory? I mean, there's passages that talk about how sometimes God takes us through challenges and difficulties and gives us comfort in the midst of those challenges and difficulties. Why? So that we can turn around and comfort others who go through similar things. Past experiences can even be a way that we serve God and produce glory for him as we, as we draw people to him by giving them the comfort that we receive from him, right? Gifts and abilities and resources, they're all unique and different for every single person here. You've been equipped and you have the Holy Spirit empowering you to use those. But there is responsibility in our part to submit to that. There is responsibility in our part to submit to the fact that we are to get busy working, submitting ourselves to him and carrying out the things that we see in scripture obediently and faithfully. Not to earn salvation, but because this is what we were saved for. We were saved to live this way. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you so much for your salvation. God, I thank you that you reached down to my heart when I was four years old. When the most important things to me were cartoons, God, you reached down and you captivated my heart with the master of the universe. And you made me aware of my sin. You made me aware of the fact that I could never fix it. Even though I had most of my life ahead of me, you convinced me that there was nothing I could do over the course of the next 30, 40, 50 years to fix what I had done already in four years. God, I thank you for making me aware of that at such an early age. God, I thank you for the salvation that's represented here in the lives of other people that sit here today who have experienced similar things, an awakening, an enlightenment to the goodness of the gospel, that it's Christ who saves us, and it's by grace and mercy and faith that we can cling to that. But God, I pray that you'd have us all be further aware of the fact that you saved us for the purpose of good works. You saved us so that we could then begin to live out our faith obediently so that others would be drawn to you. God, help us to see the gifts, abilities, resources, and past experiences that we have and how they can be used for your glory. Help us not to be loveless and lazy. Help us not to feel useless and insignificant. God, help us to come submitting ourselves to you, boasting in you with no desire to boast about the things that we're going to accomplish. Instead, we want to come boasting in you and we want to come obediently open and willing and ready for you to use us and help us to realize that if we feel useless and insignificant, it's probably exactly who you're wanting to use. Just like you used 300 men to defeat an army of Midianites so that it was very clear where the power and glory should go. God, help us to see ourselves as a vessel that you can use so that you receive the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.